Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, it cares Levert. It's cold. Levert. Back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday. Shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indy Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined today by my co-host and colleague, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Ready to talk about this game after a day to decompress from it. That is, a, it is certainly a game that we have to talk about. We decided to nick start bench cut this week because uh, that game was a game. Uh, the Charlotte Hornets scored 158 points. Um, I think that is a that is a a good primer for for what we're about to dive into. Um, I guess first question I have to ask you because I didn't get to see your reaction on Twitter. Uh, what is uh what was your reaction to the Andrew Wiggins all-star uh selection as a starter? That was something. That was definitely I mean, something. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that most people probably would have expected either Devin Booker or Donovan Mitchell to be in that spot. I mean, I guess there was like a K-pop star who tweeted something yeah. that has like 9.2 million followers, and that's how it occurred, but I mean, this is nothing new. There's usually some sort of fan voting shenanigans that goes on. And at the same time, you know, it's an accomplishment for Andrew Wiggins and he has having a really good season. So I don't really need to ruin that for him and his family by making comments about it. It just, it is what yeah. it is. That's what, that's what all-star voting is. Yeah. I'm in the same boat with you though. I think I, I kind of had wished that I was uh, off Twitter as well yesterday because I got out of a podcast and I, I saw the reactions and everything. I was like, I thought that the world was ending for a second, the way that people were acting. But um, yeah, I agree. It was really cool to see him walking into, uh, I think they played at Oracle last night or not Oracle now, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, it changes so often, but I mean, he just seems super pumped. So I think that was something cool to see. And he, like you mentioned, he's had a really good year. So I, he wouldn't have made my all-star stars for sure, but definitely a guy who should have been on the ballot. So excited for him. Now we can talk about the, uh, the less exciting part of this Pacers basketball. Um, hey, and in some ways, this was kind of a very sad version of an all-star game. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think there was less defense in this game than an all-star game. So uh, at least possible. with the Elam ending last year, there was a there was real there was real defense. Like I actually so they should implement it in the fourth quarter, Mark. <laughs> I wish um, I, I was going back through. So I watched the game for the first time this morning because I, I, I knew going into that game. I was like, I cannot watch another Charlotte game live. Um, that was a smart move. Uh, I got to one minute left in the third quarter and the Hornets had 106 points. And I, I looked at the scoreboard again. I'm like, they score. They finished the game with 158 points. And I, this, I still haven't watched the fourth quarter. Um, if I could check off, uh, like again, before I even watch the game, if I could, if I could check off Charlotte Hornets against the Indiana Pacers bingo, we got a bad fourth quarter check. I would have checked that off before the game started. Kelly Oubre going for 30 plus. I would have checked that off because he's six foot seven and athletic uh, and can shoot. So that was, to be fair though, he hit some wild shots that were pretty well contested. Um, I mean, yeah, it was, there's a lot going on here. Let's, let's just start with what, what, what went wrong. Um, and it, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. What stood out for you the most in terms of what went, went wrong in this game? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, I mean, just defense, I think that's what into the floor we can focus on. I mean, it's not very often that a team scores 126 points and still loses by 30. 
Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty impressive uh, accomplishment there. So if you look at it, let's just look back at the prior games against Charlotte. Like, well, first of all, did you even remember that the Pacers had a 24-point lead over the Charlotte Hornets <laughs> in the first game of the season? Oh, yeah, I remember. And then yeah. crapping it away, like, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, they gave up the 24-0 run. And the next game, they go down to Charlotte and the starters all get benched. And then, you know, Charlotte kind of lets their foot off the gas and it made it look much more respectable than it actually was. And then in the third home game, they gave up 71 points in the first half. So to some extent, a lot of that wasn't necessarily new for this particular matchup. And Charlotte does have a very good offense. James Borrego runs some of my favorite stuff in the half court. He's very smart about how um, they manipulate help defenders and move guys around. But the thing that stood out to me the most perhaps at the start of that game was how the Pacers chose to match up defensively. Um, putting Goga on Cody Martin. Hmm. That, it's not that, great. that was there. The Pacers have done that. Like, let's be honest. Like there's been games this year where the Pacers have put Sabonis, you know, taking him off Tobias Harris and put him on Danny green or taking him off Nikola Vucevic at the end of the bulls game or, um, take in and put Keelan Martin on Rudy Gobert. But in each of those cases, there was a very specific reason for doing it. And it wasn't the entire game. Like it made total sense at the end of that Bulls game to put O'Shea Brissett on Vucevic because it marginalized Vucevic as the screener and because they wanted to be able to switch against DeMar DeRozan. So then you have Sabonis off ball. He can sag off. You're having an extra defender in the lane. I get it. Against Rudy Gobert makes perfect sense. He can't do a whole lot against a switch in the post. He doesn't hold a spot very well. He doesn't have a very well-developed post game. If you're switching out of that, there was times even when TJ McConnell was switched onto him inside, they weren't getting any, anything. And that was allowing them again to put a switch defender onto Donovan Mitchell in isolation. Now, the Hornets are small, clearly, but if you're going to have Goga out there and he's going to be guarding Cody Martin, the thing that I didn't understand about it was, are, are you attempting to funnel shots to Cody Martin or what exactly was the goal? Like, I, I, I'm guessing they just didn't want Goga having to switch on to Lomelo Ball or whoever it was, but just don't switch it. Just put him in a drop if he's involved in the pick and roll action and let him guard Plumley because otherwise he wasn't sagging off of Cody Martin. Like he was staying attached to him on the perimeter and then he was having to cover way too much ground. So essentially what argument I would make is if you're looking for a comparison, if that's what role they wanted Goga to play, then that needed to be like watching the jazz play the Clippers in the playoffs last year in that you're just going to get more than you bargained from, from Terrence Mann. Like Rudy Gobert was all the way off having to cover up for all the porous isolation defense and covering up the rim. And if they drove and kicked it to Terrence Mann, that's what happened. Like, I think they probably could have adjusted their off ball stunts a little bit in that series, but that's what the, that's what approach it needed to be from Goga. Like I have to be one foot on the block at all times or and we're just going to give up shots to Cody Martin or whatever, because in essence, what they were doing was just inviting a ton of isolation playmaking. It was just guys getting torched out on the perimeter with absolutely zero backline help by doing that. Like at the start of the third quarter, I don't know if you remember these two plays, but Mason Plumley effectively turned into like magic Johnson because Goga was guarding Cody Martin. And as James Borrego loves to do uses an exit screen for Cody Martin to go out to the other side that drags Goga away they run a dribble handoff that switches Karras onto Plumley, and Plumley just takes him off the dribble and makes a pass to Kelly Oubre, then slipping the exit screen. And it was just like the pace, it was just like the Hornets were toying with the Pacers at that point. I mean, we can all quibble about, you know, why can't Justin or Karras in both of those possessions at the start of the third be able to 
contain Mason Plumley off the dribble. And that's probably a valid question to ask, but I think that they were overthinking it a little bit with that matchup unless Goga was going to consistently be sagging off. Well, yeah, exactly. Like you mentioned, because especially too, like if I think if Goga is, um, you know, a better uh, rim protector or not even just rim protector, better uh, help defender than what he's shown thus far, then maybe I get it more, but exactly like you're saying, like there are times where Goga just feels kind of frozen because he's like, do I go over it? Can I, can I actually go over and help on this drive? Should I go over and help on this drive? You can just feel him thinking out on the court. And like you mentioned, it just led to a lot of isolation layups that were like, okay, well, if, if you just play him and drop, which he's looked okay in moments and drop, like not awesome, but compared to, you know, what he's looked like in zone. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm right there with you. I do think in some ways it was asking a little much, um, especially too. Cause like you mentioned with Cody Martin, like Cody Martin is a really good driver and he's willing, like he'll at least if he's open, he'll shoot it. And he's capable of driving the ball really well. If somebody closes out to him. So that's just adding another wrinkle of like, this is probably a little much to ask Goga to do this. Well, exactly. And I just, I, it just felt like I said, it's it felt asking, very, like too cute. Like, yeah. Just, and, and because they had, you know, how many rookies in the rotation and I'm not trying to say that that's a complete explanation. Obviously Karis LeVert and Tori Craig were playing and those are established veterans as is Jeremy Lamb. But I think we've come to know what we can expect from Karis and Jeremy as off ball defenders at this point. Like I, I don't have a very high bar there. So the other problem that I saw vividly throughout the game is like, I feel like you could probably make a DVD of that game or, I mean, that's an outdated reference, but you know, clips of that game and show them to high school kids and be like, Hey, this is how not to switch. So if you're out on the perimeter, like even just eliminating Goga, when they were just running guard to guard stuff, it was like, you have to be watertight on the ball. They were disconnecting way too early before the next defender could connect. So then that's in part why they were giving up so many threes. The guy was way too, was way too far back before they were handing them off from the next guy. And then in the reverse of that, like you could see like LaMelo and Bridges running 21 action on the side and the screeners defender kept getting, as they were switching over, kept getting caught on the high side and, and the Bridges was just sealing or, or PJ Washington was just sealing. And then they're just getting a wide open with LaMelo throwing it over the top for the roll. So it was either one or the other. And you kind of got to prioritize which one, like, are you trying to stay watertight to prevent the shot? Or are you going to try to prevent those slips? And a lot of times it felt like they didn't exactly know which one of those things they were going to do. But again, like the one, I believe that PJ Washington got the slip on, was Ajax and Dwayne Washington Jr. So um, these are very young players trying to execute, as we've said, over the road trip and depending upon which bigs are playing, a lot of different types of pick and roll coverages. And I do think that, you know, energy and effort did play a part at certain points of that game, but a lot of it just looked like players that weren't really sure of what they were supposed to be doing at either end of the floor. And it just turned out offensively that they still managed to find enough points because if we're, you know, being frank, Charlotte's defense was, was quite bad as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was just a, a, a doubly gross performance of defense. I think is a good way to put it. Um, and like you mentioned too, like, I, I think this is one of my larger takeaways from the game. Like just look at who played for the Pacers. And like you're mentioning, I don't think that this fully excuses things, but okay. Chris Duarte is playing 22 minutes. He's still a rookie. And even though he's like, like you wrote about, I really enjoyed your piece, by the way. Um, and he's like, I actually thought he, uh, it was kind of a fun chess match watching Chris chase 
Terry Rozier off the ball and still trying to be helpful on the interior. Um, but then outside of, of Chris, you're playing, okay, you're playing Goga 18 minutes. You played Ajax 24 minutes. I have no idea how he didn't foul out before then. Dwayne Washington plays 24 minutes. O'Shea's playing for, for 16 minutes. Uh, and then Kiefer and Terry Taylor are playing combined 20 minutes. And part of that's, you know, they're in garbage time too. But like, okay, most of these guys outside of Duarte, none of these guys would be in the regular rotation. Um, and I, that does, again, does not excuse everything, but just compared to the fact that you're playing against a Charlotte team that is one of the best offenses in the NBA and has torched the starters routinely this year. I mean, is it like, was this result all that surprising to you? I mean, I guess the final score was, but they, I mean, I, I was expecting them to get their asses kicked. Yeah, I mean, the video game numbers are certainly eye-popping to look at, but when you consider, like, it's like you and I have said before, too. You can't judge defense by whether the shot goes in or not. You yeah. judge defense by the quality of it, and as we pointed out, there was poor quality possessions, but, like, let's just look back over this road trip. When they were in Golden State, I have the numbers here, the Warriors shot three of 19 on wide-open threes. So six plus feet of space. And now I will point out for people who may not know those tracking cameras do not see limbs. So it isn't always completely, it's six feet of space from the body, not necessarily from where your, you know, your arm would be reaching out to, but still 15.8% the Warriors shot. The Suns made two wide open threes. The Pelicans made five. Um, so just between the Pelicans and the Warriors, the Hornets made more wide open threes than them combined. And, and that particular game. So that's a lot of three-point variance. And like we said, I think that Kelly Oubre did make some tough shots. I mean, he basically burned down every cornfield in Indiana. It reminded me a little bit when uh, the Blazers came into town last year and Anthony Simons just went off, which, you know, we know what Anthony Simons is as a spot-up shooter. Like, I'm not trying to put them on par with Kelly Oubre, but point being, like they were also very limited in who was available in that game in the defense because of some of the Bjork and stuff looked very confused. And it was a very similar feeling in this particular game. And I know there was a lot of reaction afterwards because it was a franchise high that the Pacers gave up. And I think tying a record for how many threes they gave up. But like you're saying, the Hornets aren't just an efficient offensive team. They're one of the fastest teams after made baskets in the NBA. Like you watch back that game on the Hornets broadcast and there's several moments where the camera cannot keep up with the ball where, you know, Duarte makes a shot on the baseline. Lamelo gets it. It's a kick ahead. Bridges catches it in the middle of the floor and then pings it to Kelly Oubre in the corner. And it all happens before there's even, while there's still 20 seconds left on the shot clock, that's going to be very hard to keep up with. And, and, I'm not saying that, you know, it's acceptable if guys are trotting back in transition, but I didn't always think that was necessarily the case as much as it just goes back again to communication and just some individual stuff. I mean, we've talked on prior pods and this definitely showed up in this game that like, there's a lot to like about Isaiah Jackson's raw tools. Like I understand why the Pacers picked him. I think there's potential there, but you know, as good as he is and as good as he moves on the perimeter, he's having trouble with fouls, but beyond that, knowing how far and close to gap the ball, we talk about reads on offense a lot, but reads are also a thing on defense. And he was playing the ball too closely. A lot of times when he was out in isolation, which was giving up more straight line drives. Like I said, like a lot of the times what was happening defensively was just an invitation for ISO ISO playmaking for the Hornets to do. So um, from what I saw, I haven't been on Twitter, but from what I understand, there was a lot of commentary about it being incredibly unprofessional and embarrassing for the franchise. And I get that to an extent, but um, another comp I would make, and I'm sure you remember this game, 
the Pacers are in Oklahoma city last year and the thunder suffer historic loss, a 57 point loss. And the Pacers scored 152 points and the thunder had mostly rookies playing and guys, you know, either out of the G league. And that wasn't entirely the case. Again, I realized there were some veterans playing for the Pacers, but um, the Pacers defense has not looked good for a long time. It's just that some opponents have missed shots and others have not. And against the Hornets, they made the shots. So um, I don't really feel like that was necessarily a lower point than at other junctures of the season. Did you think that was the low point of the season? No, not at all. Um, I mean, to me, the low point of the season, gosh, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Like what hasn't been the low point of the season? I feel like the season has been the low point of the season to a degree, like because the stuff is so consistent, like obviously not giving up 150 points every game, but the same talking points, a lot of the same issues that keep popping up. Like, yeah, I mean, I would say to me, the low point of the season is probably the Miami game when they lost to Kyle Lowry and their bench, even though they had the full starting lineup. Like that was, that was, that, that one was when I was like, okay, this is just a bad team. I think that was the, the juncture for me. It was like, yeah, this is not a playoffs are not happening for this team. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't think that, I could put this up there with, with how that was. Cause I do think there's a lot more nuance with this one and how it went. Yeah. You might be able to argue that the 24 point lead was the high point of the season. Um, <laughs> yeah. It felt like, yeah. I mean, honestly, like, can you imagine how like it's again, it's not as hyperbolic as looking at like, Oh, you know, if they win that game, it's so different, but I mean, it almost felt like the season evaporated after that 24 point lead or along with that 24 point lead. I mean, there's, there's been, I think you make a good point. Cause there's been plenty of times where I've asked myself, like, you know, and I'm not saying it fixes everything, but if, yeah. if they had TJ Warren at the beginning of the season, as they expected, and Karis never suffers the back injury that was clearly limiting him at the beginning. And like that game, if, if that, you know, lead doesn't evaporate and then they lose the close one to the wizards, like if those games go a different way, does the start go exactly you know, does it all continue to roll downhill in the exact same manner? I mean, we can't necessarily answer that question, but I also agree that I would say that that loss um, to the heat um, at home when there was booing and there was frustrations boiling over. And as you say, you know, Bam and, and Jimmy weren't even playing and, and they couldn't score against the zone. That to me was like, you know, if, if you can't, if they would have won that game, it wouldn't have meant a lot, but losing it, meant definitely a lot and and shortly thereafter the report came out from the athletic that they were considering a rebuild and for good reason so um i don't think that i would point to that as the low point of the season it's just another data point and a lot of you know the only thing that i will say is the team not being i think you can expect some of that from young players and you just come out and learn from it but um, what was going, some of what was going on in the fourth quarter and guys just not seeming completely ready is kind of a larger indictment in a certain sense, because you can't really blame it on, oh, those starters and their disposition and, uh, you know, just another problem with another coach. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, 100%. I don't think that it's, I mean, to me, it's unfair to put this fully on the players and, uh, I'm not, and I, I don't know if anybody's doing that, but I, I, uh, I will struggle with that. Like, again, like we've talked about so many times this year, like the team getting to where it is right now is largely a byproduct of the way that the front office has handled things over the last couple of years. Um, has that led to, I don't even think it's fair to say disposition from the starters. Cause like, I think, I mean, to, 
to some extent. Can you see disposition at times? Definitely. Um, but that's not been like the ring sentiment and endorsement from what they're doing on court. Like, I still think it would be unfair to say that the guys aren't playing hard. Um, playing connected? Definitely not. But I, I, I don't really think you can question their effort. Um, but again, like, it's just, I, I don't know what else you're supposed to say. Like they're, they're not, they're not connected. And I think that to me comes on the coaching staff too. It's on the front office. It's not just on the players. I mean, they assemble the roster. Um, I think more so like continuing to try and fix things with this group is what kind of further cements some of the problems that they've had. Like, I, I, again, I can't put everything on that, but it's not as simple as just saying all oh, these guys, they don't have the disposition to win or something like that. Yeah. And not to relitigate the summer completely, but it almost feels like, you know, this perfect storm of confounding factors. And I hate to use that word again, but like, you know, you look at the summer and what, you know, we talked to Jake on our prior podcast earlier this week, and he made it seem pretty clear that the coaching staff isn't all that interested in continuing the double big thing. And you and I thought clear back in August that it didn't seem like they were overly enthusiastic about it. And I'm not saying they didn't try to make it work. I think that they did, but um, I just wonder how much of it because of how many reports came out about their interest in Ben Simmons. And I apologize to everyone that we're bringing up another Ben Simmons segment, but because Ben didn't get traded, And, you know, it seemed like, well, maybe, maybe if the Sixers run out of options, you know, they'll circle back to a team like Sacramento or the Pacers or Minnesota and be willing to take what's there. If they decided, you know, well, we'll just keep holding on to this. And if it goes well, it does. And if it doesn't, then we'll be able to make this move for another player. Because obviously I've said this many times, but front offices have way more information than we do about what players might become available or what's going on within other teams than what we do. So it's possible that they've just all this time been kind of biding their time for either Ben Simmons or some other player that they were interested in. And, and, you know, we're willing to kind of eat. I don't think they ever expected that it would start out this poorly, but I kind of understand why they were willing to kick the can down the road a little bit. I mean, it's even now in this situation, I've said that, like, you're not just going to make a trade to make it. And it's clear that changes need to be made. Like there's going to need to be a refresh here. They're clearly not, this is a bad team at this point, but um, I don't think that like, I mean, even just on the Sabonis front that you just trade your best player in the next two weeks, because well, things aren't going well. And we gave up 150 points to the Charlotte Hornets. So we got to ship that guy out of here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, No, I I feel similarly. But again, I think this is, if anything, it's just another further uh, dagger in the wound saying like, yeah, dude, there's got to be changes. Like it's got to happen ASAP. You know, it's just um, and again, it's hard to say because it's without starters, but still. um, Yeah. 17 and 31 was definitely not an expectation I had coming into the year, but here we are. So, uh, what do you want to transition to next with this? Well, let's just go to post game. Yeah. What were your thoughts about who talked about or who, which players went to the podium after the game, which was Goga and Tori Craig? Um, I guess I could say I was a little bit surprised that Karras didn't come to the podium because he was like technically the lone starter. I mean, Justin Holiday has been a starter much of the year, but you know what I mean in terms of somebody who's like, you know, supposed to be the um, part of the OG starting lineup. Um, but like, also, it's not like he was dodging or anything like yet. That hasn't been an issue this year. So it didn't really bug me. Um, I, where were you at with it? 
it didn't bother me at all. I mean, I think a lot of that, that game is just, you know, there's teaching points for young players to learn Mm. that we have brought up about, you know, you can sit there and look at film and be like, Hey, we need to get better in this particular situation. When, when, you know, knowing who the two players involved in the screening action are and whether you need to be, you know, handing that, that shooter off and being watertight at the top, or whether you need to be protecting against the slip and how you're, you're operating the switch, that stuff's all valid. But in many cases that was a burn the tape, move on and get ready for the next game type um, thing. And we know that in prior games, they've sat there and watched, you know, the first half back of tape and, and other stuff. So um, I don't know exactly how they handled things in the locker room after that game, but kind of the idea that like, you know, some of these established veterans, like they, you know, we've talked many times about them not necessarily having a vocal leader and the idea that Miles or Sabonis or Brogdon should have gone out there to the podium, I kind of push back against a little bit. Um, we do know that Brogdon can't be traded and that he's on an extension. So in theory, you know, he has more, uh, you know, connection to this team at the current point in time, but Miles and Sabonis' names are showing up all over the internet and in trade rumors. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean, that you don't be professional and show up and do your job. Um, That's what they're hired to do, but they did not play in that game. They're both dealing with injuries. It's a blowout. They had no responsibility for why young players didn't know how to switch and weren't getting back and handling transition defense responsibilities and why guys didn't know what they were doing in the, in the various zone coverages. Like, I don't really know why they need to go out there and say anything And, you know, and in their minds too, they might be thinking, you know, I might not even be here in a week. Like, and I think that that's kind of an aspect that's hanging over the whole team to an extent, because when you look at it, it's not even just them. I mean, Justin's had his name in trade rumors. Jeremy's had his name in trade rumors. Tori has like go down the line. So um, I think there is a certain degree of heaviness to that. And again, that doesn't mean that you don't show up and, and put out effort and, and do what you can, but I'm not going to hold a very high standard in that regard, especially when prior to these injuries, I mean, I don't know how you felt, but in the time that Sabonis has played for the Pacers, he's never come across when you've watched him on the court. He's somebody who directs traffic and tells people where they need to be on the court, but never like in a very uh, morale boosting type way. But I mean, I felt like, especially during these depleted times, there's been so many times on the court where I've seen him motion to gather guys together to huddle up put an arm around somebody like it seemed like he was making that stride before he rolled the ankle and then yesterday he did practice and he did address it and said you know this was embarrassing for the coaching staff and the franchise and there's nothing we can do about it other than just you know come out tomorrow and come with a better mindset and whatever so and I guess you could say that was somewhat a show of leadership but he was directly asked but like I just don't know that I'm expecting more from Miles and Sabonis at this given time, given what the status of what their status is, what the team might be. I mean, yeah, I think um, I don't want to be harsh, but I just think that that's kind of uh, a little too idealistic for me um, and thinking that any of those guys who didn't even play have to come and answer for, for what happened. Like, I think if this is like the 2017, 18 team or 18, 19, like a team that's actually, connected and working towards something sure like fine I'll, I'll hear i'll hear that to a degree even then i still don't know if i agree but um like i think to me like you like you mentioned like talking about everybody in trade rumors like so often people want to make it out like players out oh, there they're mercenaries they just want to go play wherever i'm like okay well that's kind of the culture that's been created here over the last year like if you're going to have everybody in trade rumors and you're looking at blowing up the team or not blowing up the team or doing whatever you're going to do like okay 
how can you not expect guys to to respond and do part like and like you mentioned it's not it's not showing up on court but it definitely well, i mean it does show up on court but not in terms of playing hard but in terms of connectedness yeah like that's just kind of what's going to happen when you when you have a team that's organized like this um so yeah i i really struggle to see that point of view i don't i don't think this is anything on on those three um I think like it's just like we've talked about the the larger aspect of not having a real hierarchy that sets up for any kind of vocal leadership. Well, yeah, because I mean, it's not even just the rumors and obviously the Pacers can't control what newsbreakers are going to print or what, you know, is yeah. out there. They can't control the rumors completely, but it's not just like, oh, you know, the, the Pacers are listening to offers for Miles and Sabonis and Karras. It's you know, the Pacers don't see, you know, Sabonis, he's, he's good, but not great. And now he's being connected to De'Aaron Fox and Pascal Siakam and whoever else it might be. And to be quite frank, like, have those guys shown that they can be number one options on contending teams? No, but, and yet those are being, you know, portrayed at least by the rumor that the Pacers see those as potential upgrades. Like, unless we're saying that it was the Raptors and the Kings that made those calls, like, I I don't know which direction they were going, or if it was just, you know, a casual conversation, there's no way to know that exactly. But um, I think that there is some reason for somebody who's been named a two-time All-Star, and we talked about it in the past. I mean, I don't know how the Pacers envision him, but I personally think he's better now than he was the last two seasons. I can see improvements in what he's done. His numbers don't necessarily reflect that for reasons we talked about on the prior podcast. But I think he continues to get better. And obviously the Pacers record is what it is. He wasn't probably going to be in any of those conversations this year. And I'm not saying he should have been, but um, it, it comes across very clearly that, and I, I've never made this argument. There was like people claiming amongst my uh, Twitter issues the other day that I said Sabonis was a top 10 player or you and I did at some point. And I, I have never said that. I like I'm not, built, said that. I have never said that. I don't really ever rank players period, but I don't, I, I agree. He's not a superstar, but um, I think he's really good. And it doesn't necessarily seem like that's being reflected in a way that would then lead him to be like, I'm the franchise player and I'm going to go out to the podium and take responsibility for this, you know, embarrassing loss at home in which I did not even play, you know? And same with Miles. Yeah, no, I agree. I also we've definitely never called him a top ten player. I think we've actively said that he's the opposite, and not even in a bad way, but like just being truthful. But no, I mean, I agree. Um, I, I don't really have anything else I can say to that because we're we're in lockstep there. So we can move on to the fact that Herb Simon was in the building, sitting there watching the game, and uh, obviously we can't be speculative. There's not a thought bubble over his head, but I'm just wondering. When he's sitting there watching it, and obviously, you know, I'm sure that there was plenty of jeers about having a nice time watching his little team, um, because that's what people like to bring up on nearly anything that's tweeted about the Pacers. But um, what are you guessing his reaction to that was, if you had to guess? Uh, man. Uh, well, if we just get TJ back and Miles is healthy and Domas is healthy, then we could be pretty competitive. No, I, uh, I mean, I imagine it can't have been good. Or I, I mean, my my biggest hope is that he just kind of had like a come to Jesus moment. Like, oh wow, yeah, this is this is not what I thought. You know, this is not. I mean, I think that, that kind of speaks to some of the larger issue too. If it's taking that to get there, but it was like like we talked about earlier in the week with Jake, like. Um, even in that Kravitz report, um, or it wasn't necessarily a report, but I mean, he, he dropped some tidbits in there that, um, even since he had last spoken to the media, it hadn't seemed like Herb Simon's mind had changed at all. And 
that's like, okay, well, that's a little troublesome after the team has tanked the way that they have after, um, after he had spoken in the media, but um, I don't mean to keep hedging, but I mean, my hope is that he saw that and was more uh, open to what seems to be the, um, the direction that the front office should go or has, has contemplated going. I, I was surprised because I think that people are like, well, he's seen it now. They're going to go into a rebuild now. And I'm like, well, first of all, there has to be somewhat of a meeting of a mind. If, if the asking price, like for instance, for miles and Karis is what's being reported. If that's multiple first for miles and a first and a young player for Karis, that very much sounds like a rebuild to me. Like, so, I mean, there had to have been some type of conversation there if that's what the front office is out there seeking unless the reporting's incorrect, which it's come from numerous sources at this point. But I think, you know, if you're Herb Simon and you're watching that, none of the starters are playing, and it looks like the team doesn't completely know what they're doing on either end of the floor, and you're giving up a historic point total, and you're looking around, and the crowd is pretty sparse. I didn't look at what the attendance numbers were, but from what I saw of the game, it looked like there wasn't a ton of people there. Um, How many of those would you be in for watching over an 82-game season? Uh, I think that would be the one, Caitlin. I don't, yeah. I don't so think I I'm guessing that. that's what Herb Simon's thinking. Because if we're being honest, that was like watching a process Sixers game. That was yeah. like what I said. That was like watching the Pacers thump the thunder in Oklahoma City last year. And in that regard, I don't think Herb Simon's completely wrong. I don't think Pacer fans are going to come to the building to watch. And, you know, sometimes there can be excitement from it, like what happened in Golden State. You know, Golden State shoots three of 19 on wide open threes. There's good energy, seems to be good chemistry. The Pacers kind of refuse to lose. The Warriors refuse to win. It leads to a, you know, nice road win for a team that's that's depleted and having to really scrape and claw. Like, there'll be moments like that, but there's going to be a lot of moments like this Hornets game. And unfortunately, the one win happened on the road at, at you know, 11 o'clock at night, and this one happened right at home in front of the home fans. Like, I'm guessing he's probably looking at that and feeling even more perhaps emboldened in his stance that, yeah, you know, trades might need to happen. We're not being competitive. I want to put out a winning product, but we got to find a way to put out a winning product. Cause I, I just, I, I really struggle to see, like, I know that there's hardcore fans and I can understand the logic behind it that, you know, a top, uh, top option superstar is not going to sign with the Indiana Pacers and free agency. And the best way to get one is likely through the draft. But I don't know that I think in this market that those fans are going to come back. If that is the product that's out there regularly to the point where people are coming out and talking about how unprofessional and other stuff it was. So um, I kind of come down differently, obviously, you know, it's for Herb Simon to say what he thinks and what he actually thought of that game. But I thought, if anything, he probably was like, yeah, and this is why we can't tank, but yeah, we shall um, see. I mean, they are, I mean, and quite frankly, I mean, whether he wants them to tank or not, they're, they're, they're not a good team. I right mean, now. yeah, it's they're, not up to them at this the top point. <laughs> or five, six, a top or five, six pick most likely. But um, just if, if this is going to be a continuation of that for several years, I'm just, I'm really struggling to see that that game made him be like, yes, this is the way. Yeah. Um, Shit, I hadn't even thought of it like that. Um, I mean, again, I think it's just more I'm I'm hopeful that that, that he realizes like you know this is could go one way or the other. But um, no, you're probably right. This is this is hitting like ultimate like moments of uh, solemn clarity on the pod today. Um, wow, 
well, I mean, per tankathon.com, the Pacers are currently fifth, like exactly fifth right now. If if the draft were to happen today, obviously the lottery would have to happen. But um, I mean, what what else do you want to hit on here? Because I, I I mean, there is other stuff we could get into, but. Well, did you know that, you know, I'm supposed to come up with fake trades now. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> so I, I came up with one during that game. Oh. It, it turns oh, wow. out, it turns out that um, you can actually swap almost these entire rosters minus, you know, Kiefer and Lance and the Pacers could just trade their entire roster for Charlotte's entire roster. You know, it, it'd be that. like, it'd be like a 10 player trade on both sides. The trade machine says here that this is successful. So who says no? <laughs> uh, I have a feeling Mitch Kupchak might uh, might not be super excited about that one. I guess we can also get into there's some injury updates floating about um, with Miles and I mean Sabonis practice he's possible to play in these next few games over the weekend, and also T.J. Warren is playing one on one now. T.J. McConnell is getting in con- some conditioning, so it sounds like. Um, I'm looking for the quote, so we're going to have to fill a little dead space here. I apologize. No worries. Um, when I saw the TJ Warren is playing one-on-one, I was like, where can I find video? That's like literally all I want to watch right now. I would watch an hour every night of TJ Warren playing one-on-one in an empty gym over what we watched last night. And I think too, like not to, not to totally, you know, pigeonhole where, where I'm at, but, um, I think my hope at least is, is what Herb saw last night is like, okay, well, if, if we already have this law of attendance and the team is playing like this and we're not even trying to tank um, or trying to be a young team, then why don't we actually just be a young team and, and go from there? But, I, you know, like you mentioned, and, and actually gauging where Herb's been at in the past, that's probably not going to happen. But like to me, I think if I like I could watch games, obviously not like that every night, but. I could watch games of a team that is young and competitive and probably doesn't win a ton. Like watching Orlando this year has been fun for me. Same thing with Detroit to a lesser extent. I think Detroit has like watching Cade Cunningham is really fun. Watching some of their uh, fringier guys uh, can be a little bit um, enduring, but like Orlando, their starters are a really fun group. They have young guys who fit together and make sense. You can see the vision for them. You can see them progressing I like that. I like knowing that that there's something that they're building towards, towards being better, being competitive, working together. They have one of the worst benches in the league, but you know you just kind of deal with that for half the game. Um, but when you're watching Karras out there with a bunch of guys who, like, I mean, like half the guys who played yesterday might not even be on the roster next year. So it's just like there's a lot less endearing about that or um, exciting about looking towards the future for me. Um, I, I know everybody looks at it differently, but it's kind of, again, hopefully that's where I hope Herb sees it, but probably not. Yeah. So these two quotes I just found, um, they're kind of funny. I mean, they weren't intended to be funny, but um, TJ Warren update. Carlisle said Warren actually had an additional scan. I've lost track of how many he's had. He's now playing some <laughs> one-on-one. I have lost track of how many he's had as well. I do know that they're always favorable though. And that's and it's you know, weeks, not months. So yes. And then, Likewise, um, this was, I, I also thought this was interesting. This is a quote about Miles. Miles had another scan. The news is good. 
um, because, you know, it's always good, but doctors are seeing what they wanted to see. I can't get into detail about it. He's made progress. His pain has decreased significantly, and he's going to start ramping up gradually. The hope is that he can return at some point sooner than later, but he's been in great spirits the whole time. He hasn't been in a boot, which I think everybody has seen. I don't think that was intentional, but it just came across as like, look, everybody, <laughs> Miles Turner is not in a boot. Did you, uh, random aside, did you ever watch the, uh, what was the, what was the Bleacher Report show on YouTube? Um, it was like Game of Thrones. Game of Zones? Game yes, of Zones. Game of Zones. It just reminds me of the Jimmy Butler trade me thing. Like, like Rick Carlisle screaming, trade for miles. Like, I just, it's, yeah, I agree. It's kind of comical. It just came, I'm like, yes, we, we've all seen on the broadcast now that he's sitting a few seats over from the coaching staff that he typically has a regular shoe on. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it sounds like uh, I don't think he's going to be playing in the near future, but at least there wasn't, you know actual TJ Warren situation for miles. Cause you don't want that for him, whether he's playing for the Pacers or another team, but um, what else do we have on our agenda for today? Since we've now been very unprofessional and talking about what we were going to talk about. <laughs> um, I think I'm looking. Um, I think that like just about wraps up for us. I mean, was there anything else I want to hit on? I mean, Dwayne hit some shots again. That's cool. Hey, there you go. Props to him. Isaiah hit a he hit a he hit a spot up three that was pretty nice. That was cool. Should we have a, a moment of pure conjecture and speculation, as I've also been urged to do of late? Um, just putting it out there. I just want to get your feedback on this. You had no idea I was going to bring it up. You've watched the New York Knicks, I'm guessing this season. I have indeed watched the New York Knicks. Regrettably. As if I, um, if somebody told you that Julius Randle was available from the New York Knicks. No. What would you say if the Pacers <laughs> sniffed around on that? Oh, man. Uh, and either, I'll put, I'll frame it this way, because it would have to be other moving parts. Like, I understand that. But either Miles or Sabonis was going to New York and the Pacers were getting Julius Randle. Why? Like, what? <laughs> I think that, that my immediate reaction would be why? Why, why, why? Like, I... I think Julius is better than he is. Ha- he has shown this year. I don't think that New York's offense is particularly inventive or does uh, anything that does him any favors. But also, like he's way overtaxed in how much he's doing. I think he's. I mean, he's he's kind of the way that his jumper has regressed this season has really shown some of the cracks in his decision making for sure. Too like. I think what's really tough is Julius is a he's a very good passer and he can see the court pretty well, but he holds the ball for a while before he like he's kind of the antithesis Sabonis. Like he's capable of making a lot of plays from the same area, but he's not doing them quickly. Like I think actually to some degree, and this is not meant as Julius Randall slander, but a lot of the way that I think people talk about Domas is painted by how they view Julius Randall as somebody who does hold the ball in, in the post a lot and can kind of kill possessions. Um like I think that he could be better utilized somewhere else. I do not think he could be better utilized in Indiana. Um, that, I, that that would be my immediate reaction to that, especially too if it's still with with Domas and Miles here, like one or the other. Yeah, well, Domas. Um, well, I mean, yeah, one of them. Like it's, uh, yeah, yeah. So 
yeah, my thought process is similar in that I think I've used this reference before, but there's 0.5 second players and they're five second players. He takes mm-hmm. a little bit longer to make decisions at times. And I think part of the problem this season and the games that I've watched is because his jump shot has regressed to a degree, especially some of the tough like turnaround mid rangers he was making along the baseline. Teams aren't bringing doubles to yeah, him as he often. He doesn't get the same help. As so he if he's not, if he's not getting the same help, then some of the passes he was making before aren't exactly there. Um, my bigger issue with him at times is that the defense. the defense and the fact that it just looks like if it, he wants to very much win games his way. It yeah. seems a lot when you watch him. And if it's not going that way, then that impacts what he does on the other end of the court. And then sometimes it's just flat out non-effort. And I think when you watch Sabonis, I mean, I've said it, I think he's a better individual defender than he was a year ago in a lot of different ways, but he has limitations as a defender in terms of who he's going to be able to check, but I don't often think, Oh, that was, you know, just a complete give up on that possession. And there's been plenty of times where I've watched the New York Knicks this year. And I just felt like, Oh, like nice effort there to close out or non-effort or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, So that's some of the thinking. I mean, he and Sabonis aren't necessarily that similar because I would probably classify Randall more as a three, four, whereas I would classify Sabonis as a four five, and Randall can do a lot more in face-up situations than Sabonis has, even though I do like that Sabonis is doing more on ball, but um, Randall's ability to have, you know, a quicker first step and, and truck through guys is a little bit different. Whereas Sabonis processes the game, I think at a faster speed and can do more um, and triangle sit out of triangle concepts and, and the elbow, I, I would much trust Sabonis. Like if it was just a, I mean, this goes back to the all-star game last year. And I know that, you know, Randall had like a magical season and really shot the ball. I mean, some, somewhat I would paint his season similarly to what 17, 18 Oladipo was mm-hmm. in terms of just how, you know, unique that was of a leap. But if it was just a question of Sabonis versus Randall, I, I would take Sabonis if I were either team, like that's just which player I would prefer to have. Um, when it comes to miles, like if you switch Sabonis out and played, Randall with him, like imagine Miles was traded to the Knicks or Randall was traded to the Pacers, and that's what pairing you had. In some respects, I could be like, you know, maybe they could run a little bit of four or five pick and roll. I think Randall's done that, you know, a handful of times when I went looking through those possessions when I did a Knicks show a couple of weeks ago, or probably about a month ago now. And my guess is though that most teams would go under and probably force Randall to hit a pull-up two or a pull-up three, or they would just switch it. But you might be able to experiment with that a little bit more. And, you know, Randall's feet switching out are quicker in most instances than Sabonis as it were if if Randall was at the four rather than Sabonis defending at the four. So I can see some of that. But, like, just from Miles' standpoint, if he doesn't like being a glorified role player and floor spacer now, I don't really see that changing if Julius Randall was playing as a playmaking hub versus Sabonis. In some instances, I think – um, he might be doing it a little bit more because Randall likes to do a lot more in isolation than, than Domas does. So I'm with you. I think that if I heard that those types of rumblings were going on, um, I, I would be asking why in either case. But um, it's just another case again, and I don't know how you felt about some of the other stuff that's going on. It, it just kind of feels like, you know, and Jake seemed to indicate that, you know, Duarte and Ajax were off the table and Sabonis was pretty close too because of what the asking price was. And I feel like, you know, there's been some conflicting reports in that regard because some people are making it sound like they're not going to take anything in return for Sabonis unless it's like what the Magic got for Vucevic. And then I've heard from other people that like, no, it's the price of an all-star. They're going to have to get an all-star in return. And 
in certain cases, whether like what I said before, whether it's Siakam or Randall or Fox, it feels like, okay, so you're just kind of moving deck chairs to another player to this point in time hasn't really been able to show they can be a number one option on a contender either. I mean, where do you stand on that? Uh, yeah. And I, I think mean, that Siakam's having a very good season. Like he's done a lot of good things of late over the last month or so, particularly, but it just, you know, he also makes over 30 million, close to $30 million a year. Yeah. Um, I would be, uh, I mean, this is tough. Um, I, I mean, I think with Siakam, it's a little bit different for me just because I think he's a far superior player to Julius Randle, at least this season. Like obviously last season is a little different, but um, I mean, he's really evolved as a passer too. I think like you, there, there's a lot there that I'm, I'm like actually like way more intrigued by, but I agree like number one player on a title contender. No, like that's not a thing. Um, but I'm also just kind of like talent. Good. I like talent. Uh, but yeah, if you're giving up Domas, it's like, okay. Like I think you can make, cases like in certain scenarios maybe Siakam can be better for your team than Domas but also like is an offense where you're going to just funnel a lot through Pascal Siakam going to be better than one where Domas is you know getting a lot of touches and trying to you know doing what he does moving moving things around easing up the flow of the offense like I don't I kind of question if the offense is going to be any better like that I mean I guess you can try and point to like Maybe there are some defensive defensive changes because Siakam does. I mean, he's a very good defender, especially once he's sure. you know once he got his legs under him. But again, like I just, I, I'm I'm there with you. Like you're just kind of shifting things around. And Pascal, what I think Pascal's already 27, 28. So yeah, he's two years older than Domas. He's like you mentioned. I don't always love talking about the money aspect, but like that, that is a very real factor with Domas. It's a very, like, it's, it's a like very real factor if you're trying to build a contender. Like well, exactly, goal- like he's a borderline All NBA player who is on a deal that vastly underpays somebody playing at his level. Like that is, I don't love, like I wish that he could be paid like an all-star all NBA player, but um, the fact of the matter is he's not right now. And that is like a competitive advantage for building your roster. Yeah. This is not, I mean, more so than what I said about Randall, it's definitely not Siakam slander. I think that over the last month and and in part, I would think that the Raptors probably wouldn't be all that interested in making that swap either, just because Siakam and Scotty Barnes together are figuring some things out. Um, They've toyed with using Siakam in a few different ways. His passing out of face-up situations is getting better, but it is very different. Um, And between how you would use him and Sabonis, the money is different. And I kind of go back to, when Kevin Pritchard had that thread where he responded about his comment about, you know, we need to find a real star or somebody with that it factor in the athletic article and said, you know, we need to find people who are going to help us close games. And I think we do have stars in that locker room, but kind of, we could always use and have more. It's like, you know, if you're trading kind of in the one star you have to get back another guy who kind of also fits in the good, not great mold, as it seems like they seem to perceive their own player, like, I'm not exactly sure what step forward you're taking at that point, depending upon what else is going and coming in and what other moves you can tinker around the edges. So um, I thought that was kind of an interesting conversation to have. And again, like, I don't think anything should be off the table for the Pacers at this point. I think they should evaluate every avenue and option and, and be willing to move on from any of the players. But I just keep going back to the idea that I don't think that you have to trade Sabonis in the next two weeks I could see some advantages to maybe still 
you know, doing something with Karras or whatnot, because you might be able to get some picks now that around the draft, you could, you know, package with other stuff when, when more players are maybe available, I could maybe see some of the logic there. And, and I think you and I have talked in the past that, you know, it seems like, and Jake mentioned this too, that, that both sides with, with regards to miles and what he sees his role might be interested in a fresh start there. And there might be, you know, some advantages there too, depending upon how other teams view his foot situation. But it just feels to me that especially because of how Sabonis's game is that if you wait till the end of this season, like even if you've decided, well, we just, we don't think that he's good enough to be, you know, our franchise player, or we just, you know, we don't even want to keep him as a connector despite some of the stuff that he does or whatever their thought process is that he's going to be a guy that a team's probably going to want to know that they have so that they can do planning over the summer. And it feels like that might open up more opportunities for you then. I mean, I'm still not opposed to seeing what a team, because I mean, this is part of it because they have kicked the can down the road and I can understand why they did it to an extent, but because they have kicked the can down the road so long with the double big pairing, we never got to see what it would have looked like with either one of them. Like we have in spurts where like, you know, one of them sits out for an injury, but that's not really telling you that much because there's nothing in return for them. You just have $18 million sitting there with, you know, plantar fasciitis or a foot injury or whatever. Like we've never had a full picture of what that would be. So if it was a case we're at the deadline, you know, and it doesn't sound likely that this would happen, but that they moved both of them. Um, I personally think it would be somewhat of a bummer that you never got to see a team with Sabonis as a two-time all-star, see what they could do when, you know, you had, and maybe there's no path to this, but you have wings that could be, you know, playing the twitchy head scheme, similar to what Minnesota has done this year, or you have more shooters and, you know, maybe you can acquire another guy some way around the draft with what you do. But um, again, we don't know what offers are out there. And I do think everything should be on the table. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, it's just a lot of, uh, I mean, I'm just, I'm very excited for 12 days from now. To, or is it 13? I can't remember if January is 31 days or 30, but um, yeah, it's, I think our, our, our biggest longstanding overarching take is that we're very ready to find out what the direction of this team is uh, and sooner rather than later. Yes, I would agree on that. Well, I spun the uh, I spun the tankathon simulator like twenty times, and the Pacers got the number one pick four times. So that's. Well, a, I think that what we've something. learned from this is that when it's time for the draft lottery, the Pacers need to send you as the representative. <laughs> you, you I, I, don't, the- I don't know if I need that burden on me because if they don't get the number one pick, uh, I might somebody is going to come for my head. Yeah. You're the talisman, Mark. You're the oh, talisman. That's please, that's how no. it's gonna happen. <laughs> I'm not interested. Thanks for the thanks for the the call up though. Um, if for people who are interested though, the Pacers currently have a 42.1% chance at a top four pick, 10.5% chance at the number one overall pick. So, in other words, neither are very likely. Please do not do not get excited about thinking this team is going to get Paolo Bancaro, Chet Holmgren, or Jabari Smith Jr. They're still going to have very good opportunities. I, a lot of people think that this draft is is worse than I think it's being made out to be. I mean, than it actually is. Um, it's just not the typical draft in some ways. Um, there are going to be some very exciting, interesting players uh, right around the Pacers range from like four to four to six, which I think is more likely about where they're going to be. Um, 
So don't get too down on your luck. Regardless, I think this is a very good, uh, very good opportunity for the Pacers to really figure some things out. But who knows? Maybe they'll trade the pick. And <laughs> the, the world's their oyster. I mean, in reality, it is. They have a lot of options they could take and, and yeah. move forward from here. So I guess that's that's the last thing that I'll close out on with with this for you. If they got their first top ten pick uh, since Paul George, first single digit pick since before I was born. Um, and they traded it, what would you say? And I know you're going to hedge and say, well, it depends what they get in return. But <laughs> when you finally have an opportunity to actually kind of put your stamp on the new direction of the franchise, which, again, that's more like, is there a new direction of the franchise? But like when you finally get an opportunity to say, okay, we're good at this drafting thing. We believe in our scouting department. Let's pick somebody with our fourth overall pick, you know, and, and they trade it. Where are you at with that? Well, I mean, I am going to be me and I am going to hedge it a bit because it would depend, you know, it would depend what players were available, like what happens with other teams in the playoffs and who might be out there, as well as I would need to do a lot, a lot more draft research and, uh, and, and know exactly, you know, how, how high do we think that these, how high are we on the players at the top of this draft versus what we might be able to get in return? Like I would need to be, a lot more informed on that. And I'm not saying that you're doing this, but one thing that I, over the last few days that I have been thinking about a lot, because, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, no, but none of the fans care about the on-court product right now. We don't need to be talking about these games. People just want to know what direction the Pacers are going to do more, more fake trades, more, you know, what would they look like if they kept only Sabonis or only miles or whatever. And in some regards, like, I don't think there has to be a rush of figuring out which guys they can get into having, you know, two apartments in different time zones at the same time. Like that's what I, I actually talked to a, an analytics person who's consulted with several different teams was messaging me the other day and was basically like saying that, like, it's okay to say that you don't know, or other people don't know exactly what a team would look like when there's no idea to know what the rest of the surrounding roster would be. I mean, even in that, even in that scenario, like do the Pacers make other moves and they open up cap space um, and then maybe you're okay. Cause you can sign some other player that you really like, and you're all right. Cause you think that somebody up at the top of the draft is, is going to be able to help and fit and play right now. Kind of similar to what, you know, Scotty Barnes is doing with Toronto. Like, is it a situation like that? Or I, I really can't answer that question. I mean, how would you feel about it? Um, hold on a second. I got, I totally, can you repeat the question? I like, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> Oh, was my was my answer like that rambly? No, no, it wasn't rambly. I just I I'm, I was thinking. I mean, how how would you feel if if I mean, answering your own question if if they traded the pick? Uh, I mean, I, as much as I, I I said to you like, uh, well, you know, like I know you're gonna answer this with nuance, but I mean, I'm coming from the same spot. Like, it just depends. Like, exactly with with where you're at. Okay, if you trade Miles, which I think, I mean, based on our talk with Jake and all reports, it seems like that is fairly likely that is going to happen. Um, not like 100%, but would would be pretty surprised if it doesn't. Um, okay, what does that return look like? Um, how are you able to close out the season with everyone's here? Do you trade Karis? Which, like, again, that seems, based on, on reporting too, like that seems like definitely something that could be in the works. Um, what does your team look like at the end there? Um, how does everything else shape up? Um and like you mentioned too, with, with playoffs and everything, like, okay, how do teams 
factor out in the playoffs. Does Ben Simmons get traded? Because that is a very important, like, like I think part of what I really enjoyed in our talk with Jake is looking at uh, kind of the dominoes falling. Like that's such an important thing in the NBA. Like everyone is kind of waiting to see what will happen because as soon as, as soon as Ben Simmons, as soon as teams figure out what's going on with Ben Simmons, then everything else spurs off from that. Like it's like, I mean, exactly. Like it is a domino effect. It's like a firework going off and everything else that's a fuse right by it starts going off subsequently. Like, um, so that, well, yeah, that because I mean, it. it's it's like we said, like there's teams that are monitoring or we know that have in, been shown interest in the past in both Miles and Sabonis, whose first priority has been Ben Simmons. So, you know, if Minnesota and Sacramento know like, hey, we're, we're out on Ben Simmons, they didn't move him, they're holding it to the deadline and maybe there's pressure from Sacramento's front office, hey, we got to do something like we got to make some sort of change, then you know, there, there's going to be a waiting game is what I was trying to get across on that prior pod. And I think what you're saying here is that I think a lot of people are like, oh, the Pacers front office just isn't doing anything. And I just push back against that so hard. Like they, they can't just automatically do something if a team has other first top priorities that they're waiting out, but continue. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. I don't think that we can say that they're not doing anything. Um, but if nothing happens at the trade deadline, then I'll be pissed. But uh, just in terms of like, you know, from analyzing it, I'll be very confused if that happens. Pissed would be the wrong way to put it. I, maybe. But uh, I mean, point being, like you're saying, uh, OK, is there a star or really high level player that does become available or somebody who the Pacers view as somebody who could become an even better player in Indiana that does become available because of how, you know, the playoffs factor you know how does that work does that make your draft pick even more coveted to a team who could move somebody um i don't know it makes it interesting uh like there's there's a lot more that could go into it i do think it makes it there's more flexibility with what the team can do and um i think kind of like we gosh it was so long ago we talked about some pot i think this was before the draft even happened um and they took chris and we were were, we were pretty sure before like like the week or two before that they were going to take chris um, but we talked about like, you know, looking at, um, BPA, so best, best player available and fit. And I think we both talked about it in the same way. And I know some people probably do get annoyed with our nuance, but also that's us. That's what we, we do the pod for and you come to the pod for, so get over it. Like, that's just, you, you know what it is at this point. Um, like there, I just, to me, there is no such thing as best player available or fit. Like, it's not some concrete thing that you can do for, every single like like it's not just one big draft board that factors out for every single team like every single team has a different way of of being able to prioritize something like Chris made so much sense for the team coming into the year I think you can look at things differently now and be like okay well I'm not sure and that's fair but given what their priorities were coming into the year like if they'd taken somebody like Moses Moody who I really was high on coming into the draft. I still like, I think he's had good flashes in the G league and, and in the NBA, but just being frank, like he would not get that kind of opportunity in Indiana. He wouldn't have fit factored in the way that Chris did and gotten the early playing time that he did. And I think it's just so important to look at what is a guy's in, in, like, what is the guy stepping into? It's not just his talent and potential. Like 
is there going to be an opportunity for it to be maximized at the NBA level? Is it going to, is he going to jive with the coaching staff? Do they care about his game enough to get him the ball where they want him? Like, do they, do they care enough to develop him that way? Like that is a very real and important factor that I just don't think gets talked about enough when looking at, I just don't agree with best player available and fit. Like it's, it's a combination of the two and you just got to take it in stride. I mean, and I think that those realities are different depending upon where you're selecting. Yeah. Um, I never had a problem with them taking Duarte. I don't do draft coverage and I generally like, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that this is what you do with, with your draft coverage, but like the idea that a lot of times teams do again, have more information than we do about, you know, why a player might've slid in the draft or, you know, information about medicals that aren't made public or other stuff about why they may or may not take a player or pass on a player. Um, but what you're saying is accurate. Like it was pretty evident to me from just the stuff that I had watched over the summer that Duarte was going to fit into um, stuff that Dallas had run that I thought would carry over. And that has shown up during the season that he would be a very Rick Carlisle like player. And I do think that he's shown that he could have, you know, a bit of a higher ceiling than what he was pegged during the draft process as, you know, kind of being a finished product because of his age. And I think that you know, he's shown some stuff in isolation and, and some one-on-one opportunities to lead me to believe that that he can be more than that. Plus just the idea that really when you look at it, the Pacers don't have a ton of two-way players and he tracks as actually being one. But um, when, you're ta- when you're talking about the top of the draft, that's a little bit different. And I think, you know, you know this firsthand, you cover the Cavs. You look at Cleveland, they already had Jared Allen and they drafted Evan Mobley. And, and so far that that's working out pretty well for them. And I, I think... You know, there might have been an argument there of, you know, you, why do you need those two, you know, bigs and how, how is that arrangement going to work? And and I think that they just, in that case, I, I do think best player available is sort of a thing. And it's just, you know, you figure it out later. You're not going to pass. If you think that Evan Mobley's, you know, got that type of talent, you don't pass on that when you're selecting that high. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, I think um, that was an intriguing one to me. Like, and I'm not trying to like hype, my, hype myself up, but I thought like, there was a case to me for Avi Mobley to go number one in the class. Like I think Cade is uh, people were way too harsh with Cade right away, especially, you know, I'm looking at context and everything, but point being like, um, I mean, even with some of the questions I had about Cleveland's roster, I was like, no, taking Mobley's like, that's not even a question for me. Like you just do it. Cause he's that level of prospect. But like, I mean, you're totally right. I think for me too, it's, it's, it's all a product of like, okay, what are you, what are you valuing? And I think like, especially this year, it is the top three. I think it's kind of three and a half because Jaden Ivey has been that level of player. Um, and shade on sharp uh, definitely throws a wrench into. Um, I have to look at a lot more with that, but um, like if you're in the top three, it's a very different discussion than if you're at like five through seven, like it, it becomes a much different equation. So you're totally right. Like, especially when you're at the top, Best player available is very, very different compared to when you're going a little bit later in the first round. Right, because, I mean, we've seen that. I mean, it's played out for the Pacers. This is kind of the first consistent playing time Goga Batadze has had. So um, when you when you took the player that you thought, and I still think that – I still think that – and I don't have information on this, but the, the Pacers probably thought we're going to move one of these two bigs and we think that Goga is game ready from his experience in Europe and he's going to be able to play backup and we're going to have this at this very cost controlled number. And that just never played out because even in the limited stints he got under Nate McMillan, it did not look like he was ready to play. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like when you're watching Isaiah Jackson right now, like if, if you were a team, like given where the Pacers were at in the standings, then 
like, and pretending that Isaiah is in the Goga spot, I would be able to look at that and be like, yeah, if they get into the playoffs, he's not going to be ready to play the backup center role. Oh, not um, at all. I mean, he's not ready to play the backup center role against uh, Oklahoma City in the regular season. Like, that's right. Yeah. I mean, and that's what's, again, that goes back to, you know, if he hadn't hyperextended his knee early and because of, you know, the G League season getting paused because so many call ups needed to happen. I think it would have really benefited him to be able to be playing consistent minutes in the G league to, you know, kind of be figuring out where he needs to be on both ends of the court more and be developing there, but that's neither here nor there, but, you know, I get what you're saying because in the case of both of them, you know, there was never really a clear path to playing time. And, and I mean, and in some respects too, there was never really an opportunity for TJ leaf. And like, I never really, fully saw TJ leaf as an NBA caliber player. And I think we can quibble with people that they passed on when they did take leaf, but um, it wasn't as if there was a clear path to playing time for him either. Yeah, no, most definitely. Well, Caitlin, I think that is probably a good leaving off point unless you want to hit on anything else before we get out of here. No, I think we're good. I think we've rambled enough. No, I think we had, we had very productive rambles. I appreciated our drafts. I know it was really good. Um, well, Caitlin, we'll be back on next week, uh, eventful weekend. They have a back-to-back tonight and tomorrow uh, against Oklahoma City. And I'm trying to remember who tomorrow's game is against. Who is tomorrow's game against? I'm trying to think as well. It would be good <laughs> if we knew our own team's schedule. Yeah, so it's Thunder at 8 tonight, Mavs at 7 tomorrow. Yes, Mavericks. And then they play again on Monday against the Clippers. So, an exciting four game stretch. I mean, three game stretch in four days coming up should be good. Um, Caitlin, I will talk to you later. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. If you haven't already, go read Caitlin's article on Chris Duarte and his off ball awareness. I really enjoyed that. Uh, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We would love to hear from you and get your feedback. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day.